We've been going through the doctrine of conscience, what conscience is, uh, what Scripture has to say about it. We've seen that conscience is by no, mean, by no means a minor topic. Uh, in many ways, you could say that the whole of the Christian life um, is one of trying to live in good conscience before God and others. Um, everything we do uh, from, from the time we wake up, from the time we go to bed, is, is meant to be with a regard uh, for conscience. It's very important. Last week, uh, we looked and considered the differences, again, between a weak conscience and a strong conscience, a weak conscience and a strong conscience, and what that means in particular, and especially what that means for the church. I think it's a very important doctrine uh, for the church. Um, It's often in discussions of the local church that this comes up, Uh, brothers and sisters who have a strong conscience living together with those who have a weak conscience conscience. We saw that uh, there are basically, in some ways, two different kinds of a weak conscience. The first, maybe the more straightforward kind, we could say, we saw in Romans 14. It's the conscience that is is weak due to ignorance or error, namely an ignorance of God's law, an ignorance of God's word. Um, And we considered that around such who are genuine brothers or sisters, who are genuinely ignorant, if they are peaceable, then we, too, we are to abstain from our liberty in their presence so as not to cause them grief um, or perhaps even to tempt them to do something which in their own heart is a sin. Next, we considered a bit more of the complicated matter. We had some fun kind of uh, unpacking this. Um, the topic of meat sacrificed to idols. This is discussed a lot uh, in the Bible and in the New Testament especially, this was just a common part uh, of living in the ancient world, that a good portion of meat that you would buy in the market or elsewhere had been sacrificed to idols. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 um, really walks the Corinthians with, uh, through how they ought to um, think about such things, how can they partake of such things and still have a good conscience And especially, how can they care for the weak conscience of their brothers or sisters? We saw that with um, meat sacrificed to idols, uh, eating it was not necessarily sinful on two conditions. First, it could not be eaten in a pagan temple, which was a very common way to do it, or in any other sort of direct, overt act of worship. Um, That was entirely to be avoided by Christians, The, the the analogy I gave for this is someone might not have a problem watching Lord of the Rings because there's wizards in it, okay? And that's okay. I, I personally, that doesn't bother me. Um, but you should not yourself be casting spells, okay? You should probably avoid that. It's probably just, that's bad altogether. Don't yourself partake in that kind of magic. Um, it's just not good. So similarly, some kind of direct, overt act of worship in pagan temples was bad. Um, Secondly, we saw that the meat sacrificed to idols could be eaten if it did not put a stumbling block before someone else's conscience, either the eater or someone else, maybe someone who observed it. If a Christian, for example, themselves is not persuaded that eating meat offered to idols is lawful. They think that that's sinful. It doesn't matter if you're not eating in a temple. It ought not to be eaten in any ways. 
If their heart will condemn them for doing so, then they ought not to eat. And Paul explains that that's because it proceeds not from faith, but rather from sin. Again, to quote William Perkins, he says, Whatsoever is not of faith, that is, whatsoever is not done of a settled persuasion in judgment and conscience out of God's word, howsoever men judge of it, whatever men think of it, I know you're fine, brother, don't worry about it. If you yourself do not have a settled persuasion in your own conscience, it is sin because it does not proceed from faith. He says, again, God regards not the outward pomp of the action or the doer, but obedience and especially the obedience of the heart. Therefore, unless the conscience, first of all, approve the thing to be good and agreeable to God's will, it can be nothing else but a sin. And he that shall do a thing because it is good in his own eyes, not knowing that God doth allow of it, prefers himself before God and disobeys him as the servant that in his master's house will not do his master's will, but his own. So even if um, generally there's no forbidden, it's not forbidden in God's law, if for you, you are um, perhaps, perhaps not even so much persuaded it's sin, but you're not convinced it's not sin, you are not doing it out of faith and you are to avoid it in that sense. And then lastly, we saw that um, even if eating meat for yourself does not violate one's own conscience, if it hurts another's conscience and grieves them, then again, we are to abstain. And here, really, the, the, the pattern that Paul gives us is tremendous. Um, it's kind of, we'll look later in, in our sermon. Um, you know, sometimes the Bible just has these, like, huge statements, like, Lord, should I, if my brother sins against me, should I forgive him seven times? And you're like, that's a pretty good answer. And Jesus is like, I say to you, not seven, but seven times seven, right? Or seven times 70. Um, it's huge. Paul kind of has something like that um, when he explains the kind of love we are to have towards those who are of weaker conscience. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I will never eat it. It's amazing. Now here, Paul is not saying he will never ever eat meat altogether um, because someone out there somewhere is stumbled by it, but he's saying that we are to be so devoted and concerned for our brother's care that if it were ever to happen, if a situation were ever to arise um, in which you could not eat meat without also stumbling your brother, then he says the choice is clear. I'll never eat meat. And we're meant to be hit by that like, whoa, whoa. Even if I'm to, to lay down my liberty for the rest of my life, yeah, the choice is clear, Paul says. Why? Because you're, ha you're to have a greater care for your brother's conscience um, than you are for your own liberties. Um, okay. Furthermore, <clears throat> let me just say that most of the advice that we've, looked, we've looked at so far, um, particular, well, in Romans 14, particularly in Romans 8 and 10, that has mostly been directed towards those that we would say uh, have a strong conscience. Um, he's really concerned with those who are strong, not caring about the weak, and just kind of saying, I, I don't care, I, you know, you're wrong, I'm right, I'm going to go ahead and do it. He doesn't give all that much advice about those who do have a weak conscience, and yet I'd like us to consider a little bit what you are to do um, if you yourself have a weak conscience. 
Um, perhaps, you know, we, we could describe various scenarios. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. Um, but we might say, well, you, you might say, I know, I know drinking alcohol is not forbidden in the Bible, but man, I was, I was raised in circles in which it really was, and I have a really hard time um, drinking alcohol without condemning myself. What are you to do if you yourself are that weak Christian? First, we should say that having a weak conscience is something that you ought to strive by God's grace to grow out of. Um, you, should, you should seek to grow to have a strong conscience in the Lord. Um, it's not a state you want to continue in forever. We are to be patient with those who, who struggle with that, um, while at the same time encouraging them to grow in various ways that we'll look at. Um, William Ames, listen to what he says of it. A weak conscience is that which is purged by unfeigned faith, genuine faith, but is troubled with these imperfections which all believers, for the most part, do, grow, do outgrow by time. So again, you do have a genuine faith, but you are to seek to grow. Um, it's a sign of a weakness of faith, and it's not something that you're to say, well, you know, you just always have to take, you know... Uh, not eat that around me, not use your liberty around me because I have a weak conscience. Well, that's true, but you should also strive to grow out of that as well. It's not, it's not a state you want to continue in. As far as how we do that, we'll, we'll discuss that in our next section a little bit. Before we move on, I do want to mention another scenario. It's not really in Scripture, <clears throat> but I've encountered it, um, and I mention it because I, I don't really think it either fits in either of the categories we've looked at, either in Romans 14, where it's more, more expressly from ignorance of God's will, or maybe in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where it's not so much a lack of ignorance, but a lack of trust in, in, in a sense of your, your liberty in Christ. Um, doesn't really fit in either of those categories. <clears throat> uh, this would be, uh, let me see. Um, okay. This is for someone who abstains from something that is normally a liberty, say drinking alcohol or otherwise, <clears throat> not because they believe it is a sin, okay? Nor because they themselves could not drink out of faith, but maybe because they used to themselves drink a lot and they simply just don't like it anymore. I think that's a little bit of a different case altogether. Um, and I've encountered that, and I had to think through, am I supposed to abstain in this scenario? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'll give you an example. Uh, it happened a while ago. I was staying with another elder of another church, and uh, he had me over on his land. He has some property in East Texas. We are going to go hog hunting. <clears throat> the only thing I shot that night was a skunk because there were no hogs, and we decided to exterminate the skunk on his land. But so he was very gracious to have us over, and I wanted to just be a good guest, and I wanted to bring him a nice gift, um, and so I got him a nice bottle of scotch, just as a, a way to say thank you. It was one of my favorite kinds, and I thought this would be, this is just a way to say thank you, and I figured we're both pastors, we're both reformed, so this will be fine, and, and he'll love this gift. <clears throat> well, I gave him the bottle, and he said, oh, he's like, thank you, brother, that's so nice, but I, I don't drink. And I said, oh, and I immediately felt very stupid. 
Um, and he explained to me that the reason is that he used to drink way too much before coming to Christ. And it's just something he doesn't enjoy anymore. Um, maybe there's the, the sensation, uh, there's a lot of bad memories involved in it. Um, but it wasn't really a sin for him to do it. Um, and he didn't think it was a sin for me to do it. And he said, he said, but brother, if you want to drink, you can have some. In such a scenario, I don't think you have to abstain again, because it's not that you're tempting him to sin. It's not a sin for him. Um, it's really just something they don't, uh, uh, they, li- they don't like all that much. I can think of my own self. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I used to smoke cigarettes a lot. I used to smoke like half a pack a day. Um, I didn't really get into cigars all that much. Um, but I just don't really care for smoking anymore. Uh, and I know there's several guys in who are here who are like, how dare you? Um, I'm just not the biggest fan. I kind of don't like the smell anymore. Um, and yet there are brothers here who sometimes we hang out, maybe after small groups or whatever, and they'll bring out their pipes. They'll bring out their, their cigars, and they enjoy it. And that doesn't bother me. I, I, just, I just don't like it, right? That's okay, too. I don't think that's necessarily a weakness of conscience. You see, the thing about liberty of conscience is you have the liberty to do something if you want to or if you don't want to. It's your liberty. If it was sin not to want to smoke a cigar, it wouldn't be your liberty. It'd be a command of God. But we don't all have the same liberties. We don't all enjoy them in the same ways. And so I personally... um, when we hang out, some of you guys know, I, I just sit there and I'm like, ugh, I'm going to smell like smoke later. This is horrible. Um, but we have a good time and I don't mind it. Uh, and I guess I kind of sometimes like the smell. I just, I just don't really like it that much anymore. But for me, you don't have to abstain in front of me because it doesn't grieve me when you do it, nor is it a temptation for me to do it. I, I might if you were like, Pastor, you, this, I know you don't like it, but you should really, this is, you've never had a cigar like this. Okay, maybe. Like, I have the freedom and liberty to do that. I don't prefer it, but yeah, sure. Why? I can, I, I can do it without sin. Um, that is another case you might come across, and it's not really a case of conscience per se. It's more a case of preference. Um, now, again, something to remember here, something where you need to use wisdom, though, <clears throat> is there might be a brother who is truly a weaker brother, but maybe out of the fear of man, doesn't want to appear to be a weaker brother, or maybe out of the fear of being ridiculed or something like that, will say, no, go ahead, it doesn't bother me, when in reality it does, okay? Now, if they're lying, that's not on you, okay? But if you suspect, perhaps, that they might be doing that, just just to kind of, they don't want to look dumb or they don't want to be embarrassed, and you go ahead and do it anyways, then, then it's probably sin on your part. Because again, you're doing something you're not even confident about. You don't have a full persuasion that you're not doing something rightly in your conscience. And so again, be wise. But generally, um, if you run into a case like that and the person says, don't, don't worry, you can, like the brother said of me, you can drink, it doesn't bother me. That's fine. You're, you're not, that's not what Paul's talking about. That's a matter of preference and not of conscience, Okay. Well, our next section that we're going to look at is advice by William Perkins on how to obtain a good conscience. 
either if you have uh, an evil conscience, one that condemns you for your sin, or if you have a conscience that is weak, which though it is good, yet it is not as good as it could be. What then are we to do? How do we obtain and maintain a good conscience? Here, Perkins talks about preparing for a good conscience. It seems to me he writes this section um, almost exclusively with unbelievers in mind. Um, and it, it, yeah, you could take it that way. I think it can be applied for us as well. I won't be speaking of this really um, as preparation for a good conscience, um, but that is something that is important for, um, yeah, for preparing in a certain sense, but also not wounding your conscience again and again. Um, and not having an erring conscience, which, if you remember, we said an erring conscience is, is still an evil conscience all the same, right? The first thing we want to do uh, that Perkins talks about to, to remove any obstacle for having a good conscience is we must understand and be aware of God's law. You must know what your duty to God and to man is. Otherwise, your conscience cannot uh, affirm that you are doing your duty uh, that God has commanded, right? We want to remove any ignorance that there might be there. Remember, ignorance can cause all kinds of havoc and problems in terms of conscience. It may lead you to do something that you ought not to do, right? We've seen this in the early church. There were some uh, Gentile Christians who were committing fornication and they didn't think it was anything serious. They ought not to have done that. That stemmed from a tremendous ignorance of God's word and his law. And by doing so, even though their conscience told them that they were fine in doing it, their conscience erred, and so they did not have a good conscience rightly before God. We've seen also conscience um, can bring in all kinds of fears, especially uh, maybe in doing things that you have Christian liberty to do. Um, and if you're, if you're ignorant of that, we've discussed this um, in Romans 14 about uh, whether certain things could, certain foods could be eaten. Um, certain holidays were to be, uh, from the Old Testament, were to be uh, kept, things like that. Well, if you have ignorance in your conscience, um, that's going to have a lot of problems with that. Perkins says, the first is the knowledge of the law and the particular commandments thereof whereby we are taught what is good and what is bad, what may be done and what may not be done, okay? Now, obviously, first and foremost, you, you must therefore be acquainted and taught with the Holy Scriptures um, and read those books, with, which will also help you to understand what Scripture teaches on these matters. In fact, um, it's very interesting. I, I would encourage you to buy a copy either of Perkins' big book, his big volume on conscience, or William Ames' big book on conscience. Maybe Ames better, actually, although I like something, I like what Perkins says in the beginning better, but Ames is, is kind of considered the classic case. The reason for this is that while they deal in the beginning of their treatises with what conscience is, what good and bad conscience, da da da, all that stuff that we've been treating of, the great majority of those volumes go through the law of God. It walks through various, what they call, cases of conscience, various kinds of duties. So it'll often have an, an exposition of, of the Ten Commandments. It'll go through various aspects um, uh, of all kinds of duties. It'll, it'll go through the virtues. 
um, prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice, all those things. Um, it'll go through various kinds of sins and ways in which you can, you can commit a sin. Um, it can seem kind of pedantic, perhaps, as you hear this, but it's meant to be kind of a go-to resource um, for various aspects of life um, in which you're, you're not sure about something. You know, I was talking to um, our brother Garrett. He's not, not here today. We'll be praying for him. I don't think he's feeling well. Um, and he was talking, you know, I'm curious about maybe making this transition in my job, but this other position, I know what you have to do. It's common in companies. I'm just not sure if what they do is entirely moral and are some of their, do they take advantage of people? I just, I just don't know about that. Well, if you had a question like that in the 1600s, you would pick up William Perkins. You would pick up William Ames. And he will, and he actually, in fact, does have a section um, on business, on various kinds of contracts, on charging rates on contracts, how you are to go about that. And again, that can seem kind of pedantic, but the point is, at least you have a resource. It's kind of a comprehensive guide, and, and they give general direction for things you are to avoid, things you are to, to strive to achieve, and what is your duty in those things. Um, and all of that in those treatises is, is really so that we not be ignorant, so that we can go about God's will with good conscience, right? Uh, I, meant, I, I, I meant to print out the table of contents for those books and give them to you guys today. I'll give them to you next week. Um, but it is really cool the things they talk about. I just read something recently uh, in William Perkins on fasting. I had a question. Uh, I wanted to understand fasting more. And I saw some things in there. I was like, huh, okay. I've been a little bit ignorant in my understanding of fasting. It's mostly right, but now I understand it a little bit more. And it actually, it helped me to do it more. Okay, wow, now I know more of what fasting is. I can do it more according to God's will. And that's the purpose uh, for having one of those. And if you want one of those, you can buy them. Um, there's, you, can, you can buy Perkins' book um, in a volume of his works. You can buy William Ames. If you really want to, I can send you an old copy from like the 1600s, it's been uh, photocopied. But um, anyway, I would encourage you to, to read that. And they're very practical and very helpful for the Christian life, okay? All right, furthermore, um, one thing we are to do, especially with ignorance, is we are to seek counsel from others um, so that we might not sin you know, Perkin, our Ames book in particular was kind of the go-to theological pastoral training textbook in North America, I don't know, maybe for the first hundred years of Harvard and Yale. Um, and, and again, maybe it's, it's a bit pedantic for everyone to read, but at least a pastoral ministerial student would have read through it so that when, they, so that when the church members come to them for advice and counsel, They'll say, well, let's, let's see what William Ames has to say here. Um, and we are to seek counsel uh, in other cases. Interestingly, this is another purpose of actually churches holding communion together. Um, you know, one, one word that gets used a lot in associational uh, documents is that we can bring doubtful matters to one another. Doubtful matters. A doubtful matter, that term is, we don't really use it that way anymore but it means something which you're not sure how to proceed or what to do. Um, those are often cases of conscience. conscience. 
And it's very interesting. If you read associational records, um, which you might think only nerds do, I think really smart and cool people do, but if you read those, um, you would see the great majority of them are dealing with cases of conscience. It's actually interesting because you can, you can read the question a church asks and you, you're like, oh, I can already imagine the kind of scenario that prompted this kind of a question in that church. And some of them are kind of funny. For example, one church asked whether any brother in the church having a gift, meaning a gifted brother who can preach, though it be weak, may not in the church meeting have liberty to exercise it, though many of the world be present. All right? In other words, there's a gifted brother in a church. We use the term gifted brother. Um, It's a term used by congregationalists for those who have the gift of teaching, but they are not um, elders, they are not pastors. Um, And so in this church, there was some gifted brother who could preach, but apparently his gift was weak. Okay, poor guy. Uh, he wasn't Spurgeon. He wasn't even half of Spurgeon. He barely had a gift, but he did have a gift. Okay, we'll, we'll say that. Maybe he was still growing in his gift. Okay, we'll be charitable. But it says, should he really preach when unbelieving visitors come into town? Um, that's especially when churches want to have their best on display, right? Look, this is like, this is the best we have Um, Should that guy with his meager gift really preach back then? Um, You can almost imagine the kind of scenario that happened. Perhaps brother so-and-so was going to come. He has a meager gift, but he was going to exhort. And then right before he's about to go into the pulpit, they see um, some local people from the town who aren't believers, and someone says, brother, would you mind if brother so-and-so preached instead today? And then he gets his feelings hurt, understandably, and he's like, well, why? Don't I have liberty to exercise? And so it creates this commotion, and so they ask the association, right? But they're really seeing, is what we did, um, was that right in our conscience? Was that right according to God's law? Um, and actually, the association says you should let them exercise their gift even though it be meager, right? So um, that's another purpose of associations is seeking counsel and advice on matters of conscience, Okay all of it having to do with dealing with ignorance, which again can play havoc on conscience in one way or another. Next, getting rid of ignorance is not the only thing necessary for the obtaining and maintaining of a good conscience. Because you can be not ignorant about God's law, and you can see that you have indeed committed a certain sin, and your conscience still accuse you. In fact, that's very often the problem for an evil conscience. Uh, It knows that what it did was wrong, and it judges rightly according to God's word, yet the the conscience still condemns them, right? So it's not just a matter of knowledge. What else must happen? Here Perkins uh, is where Perkins is at his best. Um, He says, the remedy for this is nothing else but the blood and merits of Christ who specially in conscience felt the wrath of God, as when he said, My soul is heavy unto death. And as the blood of Christ is an all-sufficient remedy, so it is also alone the only remedy of all the sores and wounds of a conscience. For nothing can stop or stay the terrors of conscience 
but the blood of the immaculate Lamb of God. Nothing can satisfy the judgment of the conscience, much less the most severe judgment of God. But only the satisfaction of Christ and in the application of the remedy, the blood of Christ, two things are required. The gospel preached, and the gospel, which is the gospel in the hand of God offered to us in grace, and faith, which is the gospel received by the hand of faith. Here then, what he's saying uh, for, for the Christian, or really anyone, um, in order to, to obtain a good conscience, to have your conscience cleansed from from the condemning, uh, uh, the condemnation of the law, the only remedy is the blood of Christ. Now, the reason for that is because the blood of Christ was the only thing that could satisfy God's justice. And if our conscience is as a little courtroom given in our heart by God, if the only thing that can satisfy God in His heavenly courtroom is the blood of Christ, the only thing that can satisfy the, the miniature courtroom of our heart is also the blood of Christ. Here then, Christian, if you have fallen into sin and wounded your conscience, or perhaps you've come to realize you were ignorant about some duty of yours, and in fact you have been sinning in a certain way so that your conscience now stings you, the first thing you are to do is run to Christ and His blood by faith and grab hold again of the merits of His blood. Nothing else can soothe a wounded conscience, not even uh, overcoming your ignorance. That will only make the condemnation worse as you see more of your sin. Only the blood of Christ can soothe it. Here, you are to meditate on the power of Christ, the power of His blood. Pray to the Father to enable you to stand strong in faith. Here, confess to the Lord, 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 my faith is weak. Perhaps you are as the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe that the blood of Christ washed away my sin, and yet my heart still stings. Help my unbelief. And the Lord will give you enabling. Also, if you have a weak conscience, not so much from ignorance, but from a weak faith which has trouble resting in your Christian liberty, one of the ways you can overcome that is again by removing any ignorance, but also praying that God would increase your faith and trust in the blood of Christ. This is what you are to do if you have a weak conscience, and this is the way that you will primarily overcome it. Um, yes, it, if it's a Romans 14 case, um, it, it will be by overcoming ignorance. If it's a 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 case, it will be by God increasing your faith and your trust in, in the merits of Christ, that you know, no, yeah, I, I fully have the liberty to do this. Why? Well, because Christ bought me this liberty by his blood, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So seek, seek to, to grow in faith and ask the Lord for that. Again, uh, it's so marvelous that, that that verse was put into Scripture. Um, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Probably the most honest naked, transparent prayer of faith that ever was given. Lord, I believe, but my faith is so weak, sometimes it feels like I barely believe at all. Um, yet that was faith, because it looked to Christ. Uh, so likewise, look to, look to Christ. Now lastly, as far as maintaining a good conscience, let's say you fell into sin, 
Maybe you, you snapped at your wife, you snapped at your kid, you did something really dumb you shouldn't have done, <sighs> your heart convicted you, you confessed it before the Lord, by faith you grabbed hold of the blood of Christ, and you have a, a good conscience again, and you feel confident again because you've grabbed hold of gospel promises. How do you maintain it? That's the hardest thing, right? How do you maintain it and not lose it? And and I don't mean to be crass, but you know, I think if we looked in our hearts and there was kind of those signs that you see in warehouses like, this many days to, uh, we've been accident-free. It's almost like this many days of a good conscience, right? And we all have those days where you're like, oh man, I just feel I've had that, I've, I've had a good conscience and it's a joy. And then you fall into sin and you like walk up into your heart and you're just like, it's like zero, right? You start all over again. Okay. How do you maintain that so that you don't fall, right? So that, so that you continue on in good conscience. Perkins says, after a man hath got a good conscience, his second duty is to keep it. And as in governing the ship on the sea, the pilot holding the helm in his hand hath always an eye to the compass, so we likewise in the ordering of our lives must always have a special regard to conscience. He continues, that we may keep good conscience, we must do two things. These are kind of obvious, but it's good to go over. First, avoid the impediments thereof. Avoid the impediments thereof. It's like, duh, but we don't often maintain a good conscience, so it can be repeated to us, right? Avoid the impediments thereof. And second, make use of suitable preservatives or those things which preserve a good conscience, okay? First, he says, we are to avoid impediments. Impediments of good conscience, he says, are especially three. Ignorance, which we've already looked at. Second, unmortified affections and worldly lusts. Ignorance, unmortified affections, and worldly lust. Ignorance, we've already talked about. We won't continue but you can understand how ignorance can also cause you to lose a good conscience as well, right? But we'll continue. Um, yeah, we'll go with the second impediment. He says the second impediment is unmortified affections, what we might also call passions, sinful desires that have not been put to death. He says these, if they have their swing... As wild horses overturn the chariot with men and all, so they overturn and overcarry the judgment and conscience of a man. And therefore, when they bear the rule, good conscience takes no place. Now, to prevent the danger that comes hereby, this course must be followed. When we would have a sword or a knife not to hurt ourselves or others, we turn the edge of it, and so that we may prevent our affections from hurting and annoying the conscience, we must turn the course of them by directing them from our neighbors to ourselves and our own sins or by inclining them to God and Christ. But what he means by that is you have to mortify your sins, okay? Let's say, for example, in that case we just gave, you, you fell. Um, let's say, for example, it's very common, you fell into lust, okay? Um, uh, you, perhaps you looked at something you shouldn't have, uh, you fell into lust, you were convicted, you confessed it before the Lord, maybe you confessed it to others, um, 
You, you grabbed hold of Christ by faith again in his blood, and you, you knew that, yes, even this sin has been atoned for by the blood of Christ, and now you have a good conscience, and you go to continue to live, and yet you have unmortified lust in your heart. Like a weed growing unchecked, it has not been plucked out of the heart. Over time, it will continue to grow, and when it grows, it will again turn into sin and derail good conscience if not checked, okay? That's what he's saying. Um, you know, one of the greatest reasons, brothers and sisters, for why you should hate your sin is because of the havoc it makes on the soul. If conscience is as a continual good feast, Perkins says, um, a wounded conscience uh, is like having to eat <laughs> horrible food. It's like being constantly hungry. It's just a horrible pain. And so one of the reasons that should motivate you to mortify your sin, not just to repent, I'm, I'm sorry, and to move on, but to try to kill it, to put it to death so that it doesn't crop up again, is, is because it will only make havoc on your conscience. You should hate it because of that. One of the greatest hopes you should look for in mortifying your sin is the joy of having a good conscience before the Lord continually. I know there's been ways in which um, I have grown in the Lord, and it's so good to no longer fall in certain ways. Like, ah, I'm glad the Lord, the Lord by His grace put that to death. Um, that's a great joy and a peace to have. You ought to, to use that as a motivation in putting unmortified lusts to death because they will only again and again derail conscience, okay? Lastly, Perkins says, the third impediment is worldly lusts. That is the love and exceeding desires of riches, honors, pleasures. Every man is as Adam. His good conscience is his paradise. The forbidden fruit is the strong desire of these earthly things. The serpent is the old enemy, the devil. Who is he may, who is he may be suffered to entangle us uh, with the love of the world will straightway put us out of paradise and bar us from all good conscience. Now, here I guess we could say um, this kind of is almost the same thing as unmortified lusts, but I think what Perkins is getting at um, is not just mortifying present lusts, but keeping an eye on idols and future lusts from popping up in your heart, right? Um, one of the best ways that you can kill sin is by plucking it out early before it takes deep root in your heart. When it does that, the blood of Christ is still powerful enough to remove it, but it's probably going to be hard. You're probably going to have to really mortify it with a lot of the means of grace. So at those first inclinations of the heart, you're to pluck it out, right? And you're to keep small accounts um, in order to maintain good conscience. Next, Perkins talks about the preservatives of a good conscience, the preservatives. Um, it's not enough that you simply avoid bad things. Uh, in fact, that's not even the main thing. The main thing that you are to do is to use the means to preserve good conscience. And he says these are namely two. The preservatives of good conscience are two. The first is to preserve and cherish that saving faith whereby we are persuaded of our reconciliation with God in Christ 
For this is the root of good conscience, as hath been showed. Now this faith is cherished and confirmed by the daily exercises of prayer and repentance, which be to humble ourselves, to bewail and to confess our sins to God, to condemn ourselves for them, to pray for pardon and strength against sin, to praise God and give Him thanks for His daily benefits. Now by the unfeigned and serious practice of these duties, repentance and faith are daily renewed and confirmed. Okay? In other words, you are to strengthen and renew faith. As he says, faith is the root of good conscience. Uh, faith in the Lord is what makes a conscience good. It purifies the conscience. Therefore, to maintain good conscience, you must strengthen it. Notice the things he says, those duties. Um, if, if you notice, in many ways, uh, these are all the things that we do in our liturgy, right? We confess sins, we repent, we give thanks to God, we praise Him, we ask for new strength, um, we, we meditate on His Word, all these things. Why? Well, because when we come to church on Sunday, we are nurturing faith. We are, we are rebuking sin, but for the purpose that faith and repentance might be renewed. Why? Because that's how you maintain a good conscience. That's what we come here to do. Um, lastly, Perkins says, the second preservative is the maintaining of the righteousness of a good conscience, which righteousness, as I have said, is nothing but a constant endeavor and desire to obey the will of God in all things. Now here, if you've not been with us, Perkins is not talking about um, you having a righteousness before God because of your own obedience and your own good deeds. That comes from Christ alone. When he speaks of uh, this kind of uh, righteousness, it's a way that theologians talk um, as having a righteousness of a good conscience. Um, for example, Paul says, I am not aware of anything against myself. Really, Paul, you've been perfect this whole time? No, that's not what he means by that. He means he's not aware of any sin which he has not yet confessed, taken to the Lord, uh, and which has not yet been covered by the blood of Christ. There is nothing at that moment that he's aware of um, that, that he currently needs to take to the Lord. In that sense, he has a righteousness of good conscience. Um, this is, you see the psalmists talk this way all the, all the time. Um, Lord, uh, have mercy to me according to my righteousness, according to my obedience. They're not saying they're spotless and perfect. What they're saying is, Lord, I have endeavored to obey all your commands. I have, I have done so very flawed and very imperfectly, but nevertheless, I have endeavored to do so. That's what it is. Perkins says we are to seek to maintain this, um, to seek to endeavor uh, to obey the will of God in all things. That this righteousness may be kept to the end, we must practice three rules. The first is, we are to carry in our hearts a purpose never to sin against God in anything. For where a purpose is of committing any sin wittingly and willingly, there is neither good faith nor good conscience. The second is to walk with God as Enoch did, Genesis 5.24, which is to order the whole course of our lives as in the presence of God, desiring to approve all of our doings even unto him. The third is carefully to walk in our particular callings, 
doing the duties thereof to the glory of God, to the good of the commonwealth and the edification of the church, avoiding therein fraud, covetousness, and ambition, sinful ambition. Now, what he's getting at in this this last um, note is something that I have found particularly helpful. Um, Note, he says, maintaining the righteousness of a good conscience is to conscientiously, um, to, to do so on purpose, to, to have an endeavor to obey God in all things. And I'll explain one way this works. I know, and I've been confessing to you guys, if you've come on Wednesday to the prayer meeting, or maybe I've talked about this, that ever since Santi, our second born, was, was born uh, almost four months ago, um, it, it has exposed more sin in me, and I've been snippy with people. Um, not like full-blown losing my mind, but snippy. Uh, and I've had to repent of that, and I've had to take that back, take words I said to Annika or even to Carlos um, as just unjust anger, right? It's, it, it's not them. It really is just more of my sin exposed because now we have this other little human that cries. We used to have one, but now we have two, and so I, you know. Um, and there have been many times in which I've confessed those, uh, those words to Annika. I've asked her forgiveness. I've said that in prayer meeting. You know, I've asked for for. For their prayers. But I have found the thing that has really helped me to overcome it is what Perkins talks about here, to purposely endeavor to walk in God's commands. And the way that I have, I have really grown in this is in the morning, as I'm reading the word confessing, to, to consciously say, today there will be several situations probably in which I will feel my, my blood rising and I will want to be snippy with people. <laughs> God, help me to endeavor not to do so. And I have found that when those moments come, they come and the blood still rises, but my mouth stays shut. <laughs> That's the better part. Or, or my eyes don't roll as like, obviously, maybe, maybe just a little flutter, but nothing big, right? Um, That's purposely endeavoring to walk according to God's will. That's what he's talking about um, in this. Um, and it has helped, honestly, in maintaining a good conscience um, because I might feel like, oh, man, I love all this stuff. We're learning about conscience and the joy of a good conscience, and then I snap at my wife. It's like totally the opposite of uh, everything you're supposed to be learning about good conscience. And then I have an evil conscience for a second. I feel condemned. Um, well, this has helped me to maintain that because although I feel that arise in my heart or maybe something does come out of my mouth, it's much smaller, and so I keep smaller accounts and my conscience is not wounded as much, okay? It's a practical way you can do that. Well, with that, um, we are largely done with the majority of stuff for conscience. I know this is our 10th look at the doctrine of Christian liberty and conscience. The only thing really remaining to look at is the binding of conscience. Um, How can conscience be bound? What does that mean? Um, And with that question, we will actually uh, return to our confession of faith. We started off this chapter really going through our confession of faith, which is kind of how we use um, Sunday school. We've taken a long digression. We're going to come back now, um, and we're going to answer all kinds of questions in what way um, are various commandments binding on the conscience? Um, Are the commandments of Ben binding on the conscience? Uh, We'll look at all kinds of things like that. Um, But that's it.